One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Colts at Ravens. Kickoff Sunday, September 24th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 45. Game Overview by Hilo. The Colts would struggle to cover an elephant on the perimeter this season. It's been bad. Baltimore saw J.K. Dobbins suffer a season-ending injury and now could be without Justice Hill as well, who emerged from Week 2 with a toe injury. The team signed veteran back Kenyon Drake on Wednesday. Odell Beckham Jr. did not practice Wednesday after aggravating an ankle injury. Anthony Richardson self-reported concussion symptoms during the Colts' Week 2 win over the Texans and did not practice Wednesday. How Indianapolis will try to win. The Colts continue to play with pace, second-ranked seconds per play at 24.7, interestingly enough, second only to the Patriots, and elevated pass rates, fourth-highest pass rate over expectation value through two weeks, carrying forward tendencies we saw during the preseason. A lot of their offensive game plan is likely to revolve around the availability of quarterback Anthony Richardson. While Gardner Minshew is one of the better backups in the league, he doesn't bring the same per-play upside to the table as a guy like Richardson does. Relegating the offense to a more game management mindset should Minshew start. New head coach and offensive mastermind Shane Steichen has turned some heads, just mine maybe, early in the season for the way he has managed this offense with a rookie quarterback, mostly from the sense that he is throwing Richardson directly into the fire to run an offense he wants to run as opposed to starting him off easy and building up to his vision. We should view that as an overwhelming positive for this offense and for the development of Richardson. Deion Jackson went from lead back with a 71% snap share in week one to the bench with zero offensive snaps in the blink of an eye with the return of Zach Moss in week two. Moss returned from a broken arm to immediately play 98% of the team's offensive snaps and handle 100% of the team's available running back opportunities, putting to rest any uncertainty regarding how this backfield will operate in the absence of Jonathan Taylor, who's on the pup with an ankle injury. Similar to other spots covered this week, the problem isn't matchup or workload expectation. The problem for Moss resides in a matchup with a Ravens team that has been one of the better rush defenses in the league over the previous five seasons. I'll keep bringing this up when we talk about the Ravens, but nose tackle Michael Pierce is one of the true interior cloggers left in the game, giving the Ravens a lot of flexibility behind knowing he can be so effective up front. While the pace and pass rates have been pluses, both Richardson and Minshew currently hold two of the bottom four values in average intended air yards, meaning this offense has largely been confined to the short areas of the field, 4.9 for Richardson and 5.9 for Minshew. That said, this entire offense is one of the more concentrated units in the league through two weeks, playing league average rates of 11 and 12 personnel and really only showcasing one back who we previously discussed, three wide receivers, Michael Pittman and Alec Pierce are true every-down receivers, and slotman Josh Downs has a stranglehold on the slot snaps, and three tight ends, Kylan Granson, Mo Cox, and either Drew Ogletree or Will Mallory, for what amounts to a very average 20% 12 personnel rate. Because the downfield shots have been so infrequent, the Indianapolis offense has largely been called on to march the field and string together drives to this point in the season. Richardson's mobility and extreme athleticism has aided that design, making it more difficult with Minshew. A lot of the expectations from this game environment, and not just the effectiveness of the Colts' offense, is likely to come down to the presence or absence of Richardson. Pittman is the true alpha of this offense, but has largely been confined to the same short area role that restricts the offense as a whole. How Baltimore will try to win. While we know very little about how we expect offenses to approach certain spots, 
We know almost zero still about this Baltimore offense. And man, it feels like this franchise has dealt with more injuries to key contributors over the previous five seasons than any other squad. A week after losing J.K. Dobbins for the season, wide receiver Odell Beckham Jr. and running back Justice Hill departed with ankle and toe injuries, respectively, in Week 2. Neither participated in practice on Wednesday and should be considered questionable for Week 3 as of Wednesday. The Ravens have averaged a slightly above-average 68.5 offensive plays per game, but have been one of the slower offenses in the league at 30 seconds per play. That said, we've started to see glimpses of the pass-leaning ways of new offensive coordinator Todd Monken's offense, as the team now ranks 8th in PROE through two weeks. It simply remains highly unlikely that John Harbaugh would allow an up-tempo offense at any point in his coaching career, which places a relative cap on the offense unless they are pushed into increased aggression, which is fairly unlikely here unless Anthony Richardson plays. The run game could be influenced greatly by injuries for a second consecutive week after Justice Hill emerged from week two with a toe injury. The team signed veteran running back Kenyon Drake on Wednesday, someone who has familiarity with the team, but not necessarily the offense. An absence from Hill could leave the bulk of the rushing opportunities to Gus Edwards, who is about as yardage and touchdown as they come. The matchup is far from ideal against a now-healthy Colts interior, holding opposing backs to just 2.6 yards per carry to begin the season tops in the league. It's scary how good this Colts interior is when healthy, and they've held true to that through two games thus far. If the strength of the Colts defense is on the interior, the glaring hole for them is on the perimeter. Indianapolis has ceded the most fantasy points to opposing perimeter receivers through two games, with Calvin Ridley, Tank Dell, and Nico Collins all exposing their perimeter coverage. The biggest problem for how this spot sets up isn't the matchup or likeliest path of least resistance, it's the significant levels of uncertainty surrounding the Baltimore pass-catching core. We mentioned Beckham Jr.'s uncertainty regarding his ankle injury earlier, but Rashad Bateman has peaked at just 59% of the team's offensive snaps even after Beckham Jr. left the previous game and failed to play a single snap in the second half. To me, that sounds like Bateman's foot is still a lingering issue, which we know can happen with Liz Frank injuries. Both Nelson Aguilar, 25 snaps, and Devin Duvernay, 22 snaps, played meaningful snaps after OBJ departed the team's Week 2 contest. That could mean tight end Mark Andrews and rookie wide receiver Zay Flowers are the only two near-every-down pass catchers for the foreseeable future. Or Bateman enters an every-down role in the absence of OBJ. Or OBJ is active and plays his standard near-every-down role. As I said before, this spot carries a wide range of outcomes, but the matchup very clearly tilts towards the air, and more specifically, towards the perimeter. Likeliest Game Flow This game carries one of the widest range of outcomes as far as how it is likeliest to play out. Richardson, Hill, Beckham Jr., and multiple pieces from the Ravens' secondary all could influence the level of aggression to expect from both sides here. With such a wide range of potential outcomes, that should leave us primarily looking to ownership in this spot, as we could legitimately see everything from a backup-induced slugfest to an Anthony Richardson-induced shootout. Keep an eye on the level of health and those three key players as we approach Sunday. Outside of those thoughts, it's almost meaningless to dig into the likeliest game flow as of Wednesday, so we'll circle back with more thoughts on this spot in the DFS Plus interpretations on Friday. Titans at Browns. Kickoff Sunday, September 24th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 39 and a half. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. The Browns' defense has given up roughly the same amount of points this season as the offense. Tennessee's offense has struggled to find itself in the first two games of the season. 
Cleveland lost star running back Nick Chubb for the season on Monday night and has to figure out its backfield and Deshaun Watson's accuracy. The Titans' defense continues to be one of the biggest pass-funnel defenses in the NFL. Both teams rank in the bottom 10 in the NFL in pass rate over expectation as they lean on their running game and offensive line to mask passing game deficiencies. How Tennessee will try to win. The Titans under Mike Vrabel have stayed consistent, if nothing else. They want to run the ball, milk the clock, and win ugly. The issue they had last year and continue to have this year is a pass defense that is weak, to put it nicely. Tennessee ranks 27th in the NFL in PROE and 32nd in seconds per snap, a.k.a. tempo. This is nothing we weren't already aware of. They are going to play slow and pound the rock with Derrick Henry. They will occasionally take shots downfield, like last week when Traylon Burks got loose for a 70-yard reception, but for the most part, this team is going to ride Henry and make their hay off his physical dominance and leveraging how defenses adjust to contain him. Play-action passing, quick screens, and downfield shots against single high-safety looks when teams bring an eighth defender into the box to contain the big dog? Unfortunately, Henry has been mediocre so far this season, averaging only 3.6 yards per carry over his first two outings. This week, Tennessee takes the short trip to Cleveland for a matchup with an extremely good Browns defense. Through two games, the Browns defense has given up only 15 points to the Bengals and Steelers, while their offense has given up 14 points on turnovers that handed their opponents defensive touchdowns. This elite defense has the physicality and talent to mute the Titans' offense as long as they are not given short fields. The Titans' offense faces an especially difficult task if DeAndre Hopkins is not able to return to form, as he has been nursing a hamstring injury for over a week and missed Thursday's practice. Tennessee's approach is a very direct one that doesn't require a ton of insight. They want to get in a street fight and hope that the fact that they've got the biggest, baddest dude is enough to make their opponent say, Uncle. The presence of Hopkins would help, especially if he's able to move like himself and present a threat to Cleveland, as that would occupy more attention from their secondary and open things up for Traylon Burks, Chiga Conquo, and Nick Westbrook-Akine to move the chains as secondary pieces who Cleveland isn't as focused on. How Cleveland Will Try to Win Deshaun Watson continues to look like a shell of his former self, as his accuracy and decision-making is all over the place. The Browns' defense alone should have them sitting with a 2-0 record, but two defensive touchdowns by the Steelers on Monday night sealed the fate of the Elves, as Jamar Chase calls them. Star running back Nick Chubb had a catastrophic knee injury in the first half of that game and is gone for the season, with Jerome Ford assuming feature back duties and Kareem Hunt being added for running back depth on Wednesday. The Browns also lost star offensive lineman Jack Conklin for the season, so this team that was built around their offensive line and running game now has to look in the mirror and reevaluate their approach for the season and on a weekly basis. Usually, we have a very specific idea of what teams will try to do entering the game, but this situation is unique. Cleveland's defense appears to be too good to let a mediocre opponent consistently move the ball, and Cleveland's offense hasn't shown much in the way of consistency or credibility. When you look at it from a coach's perspective, their defense has been so good that it seems like a terrible idea to take a chance on neutering them early in the game with offensive mistakes that give the other team control of the game. That said, with a shorthanded offensive line and backfield against the league's number two ranked defense in yards per carry allowed, it would seem logical that they shouldn't bang their head into the wall repeatedly. A more pass-happy game plan would make sense with the caveat that short area passes that keep the ball protected are preferred. Playing on a short week, it will be interesting to see if Cleveland enters the game with an altered approach or maintains their heavy rush rate early before opening things up later. 
There is a wide range of approaches the Browns could have here, but I'm hesitant to trust that they will truly open things up until they have to if their coaches watch the same film as the rest of us from Monday night. Likeliest Game Flow Everything about this game screams snooze fest, as we have two teams who want to play conservatively, don't appear to trust their passing games, and don't push the tempo. Plain and simple, the likeliest game flow of this game is a series of punts and field goals occasionally interrupted by a mind-numbing offensive mistake. Those are just the facts based on what we've seen through two weeks. There are two avenues that provide hope to this game getting a spark. The first avenue is Derrick Henry who physically is able to take over against even the toughest opponents if he gets a couple of good running lanes. Should he break free a couple of times and or Deshaun Watson gifts the Titans some free points early in the game, then Cleveland will likely turn up the heat offensively against the Tennessee secondary, which continues to be this team's Achilles heel. The other path for this game to exceed scoring expectations would likely be that without Nick Chubb and star offensive lineman Jack Conklin, Cleveland turns to a more pass-centric approach to attack the clear weakness of the Tennessee defense. In order for this to matter, Deshaun Watson would need to be able to find some semblance of accuracy early in the game and look more like the former All-Pro quarterback who led an explosive Texans offense and less like Uncle Rico showing off for the neighbors. Falcons at Lions. Kickoff Sunday, September 24th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 46. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. The teams involved in this game are the bottom two teams in the NFL in pass rate over expectation through two weeks. Detroit is battling injuries on both sides of the ball, which should make Atlanta's offense more efficient and Detroit's offense more pass-heavy and quicker-paced. David Montgomery's status is of particular importance to the potential of this game, with the Lions having a better chance of winning if he plays, but the game having a better chance of turning into a track meet if he sits. Both defenses have been solid so far this season, but Atlanta's pass defense and Detroit's run defense will have their toughest tests in Week 3. Explosive young players on both sides of the ball have the opportunity to light the match on this powder keg. We should not automatically assume run-heavy means slow and boring, especially with the players involved here. How Atlanta Will Try to Win Atlanta enters this week with an unblemished record, after securing home wins over the Packers and Panthers. This week, they will face a tough road test against a Detroit team that is always competitive. Atlanta's pass rate over expectation is dead last in the NFL, and that's exactly how head coach Arthur Smith likes it. Detroit's run defense has been solid so far this year, but it hasn't really been tested. In week one, they faced the Chiefs, who were without Travis Kelsey, which made them much easier to defend in all facets of offense, and in week two, they faced a Seahawks team with a banged-up offensive line. The Falcons boast PFF's number four ranked run blocking unit, and they should match up somewhat favorably here. Tyler Algier has been solid since the latter half of last year, and B. John Robinson is downright electric to watch. Leaning on those two makes a lot of sense when you watch them run, and run they will. As we just discussed, Atlanta is going to run the ball. It's not a secret. We won't spend too much time on them because Detroit is the bigger X factor here and the team that truly holds the keys to how this game plays out, but there are a couple of things to note. First, Desmond Ritter ran the ball 10 times last week, and added dimension that could give Detroit's defense fits as they typically play a lot of man coverage, making them susceptible to QB scrambles. Second, the Falcons don't throw at a high rate, but it is relatively condensed when they do. Desmond Ritter completed 19 passes last week, with only 5 players catching a pass and all of them catching multiple passes. Finally, the biggest gripe outsiders have about the Falcons is their lack of use of their young weapons. The aforementioned high rate of man coverage typical for the Lions for the past year would give those weapons some opportunities to make big plays. Detroit will be without three edge rushers and two defensive backs for this matchup, 
which should afford Ritter some extra time on his occasional dropbacks and give those elite playmakers a chance to win matchups. How Detroit will try to win. The Lions have played two close games so far against teams who made the playoffs last season. Following an upset win over the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs, the Lions lost a heartbreaker in overtime that featured a second-half pick six thrown by Jared Goff, a field goal to force overtime at the end of regulation, and a walk-off Tyler Lockett touchdown. Similar to last year, this Detroit team profiles as one who could be a part of many high-scoring affairs in 2023. The Lions also have some injury issues to deal with on the offensive front, with two starting linemen likely to miss Week 3 along with running back David Montgomery, in addition to Amon Ross St. Brown dealing with a turf toe injury. The Lions currently rank 31st in the league in pass rate over expectation, ahead of only the Falcons, and rank in the middle of the pack at 16th in pace of play. The likely absence of Montgomery will potentially change their approach, however, as a change in personnel will change their optimal way to attack. Offensive coordinator Ben Johnson received heavy interest for head coaching vacancies this offseason in large part due to his creativity and ingenuity in getting the most out of his personnel. Removing a player like Montgomery from the equation is a big deal. Montgomery has never been a darling of the fantasy community because he is not as flashy or explosive as many would like, but he is, without a doubt, an outstanding real-life football player. Going back and watching last week's loss to the Seahawks, you can see within the film what makes Montgomery valuable to a team by comparing him to his running back counterpart, Kenneth Walker. Whereas Walker consistently bounces runs away from traffic and tries to break free for home runs, often leading to no gain or short runs, Montgomery instead consistently works for a couple of extra yards beyond what is given. On our stat sheets and fantasy matchups, those 1-2 yards turning into 4-5 to five yards aren't worth much. But for an NFL team, there is a huge difference between 2nd and 9 and 2nd and 5. Montgomery is also very secure with the ball, fumbling only 7 times on over 1,100 touches in his NFL career, while also being trusted in pass protection and generally regarded as a leader and player who can be trusted with his assignments. Those are the reasons that he signed for the 2nd highest RB contract on the free agent market this offseason to the coaches he matters. Given the backdrop and public perception around running backs don't matter discussions, it may seem odd for us to spend so much time talking about Montgomery's qualities. The reality, however, is that his presence, or in this case the lack thereof, is paramount. As noted before, Ben Johnson is very sharp. Removing the trusted veteran who was carrying the load in the rushing department changes what is now optimal for the Lions. Rookie Jameer Gibbs has been used sparingly in Week 1 and moderately in Week 2. Some of the things Detroit has shown so far with Gibbs have been highly encouraging and exciting, putting him in motion from various spots on the field and running true routes out in space that isolate him on defenders. Gibbs has a skill set remarkably similar to prime Alvin Kamara, and the Lions now have a reason and need to lean into that. Coincidentally, head coach Dan Campbell was in New Orleans when Kamara came to town. Assuming Montgomery is out, journeyman Craig Reynolds should assume some of the grinder touches but Gibbs should be a central part of the game plan, and the overall approach of the offense should be tailored as such. This should mean a greater emphasis on spacing, motion, and tempo. The Atlanta defense ranks fourth in PFF run defense grade and stifled the Packers last week, who continuously jammed A.J. Dillon into a brick wall. Ben Johnson is too sharp for that. He will open things up and put his players in the best position he can. Likeliest Game Flow on the surface, this game may look like it has the potential to be slow-paced and hyper-focused on the running attacks as it features the two teams who rank at the bottom of the league in pass rate over expectation. Diving a bit deeper, however, we can see past the things opening up and how the way these teams match up may gradually coax each other into a more aggressive approach. 
While conservative in play calling, these teams have actually both been middle of the pack in tempo through two weeks, signaling that they aren't just trying to play stall ball and are willing to play a bit faster when the situation calls for it. Atlanta is going to run the ball often, almost regardless of the score, but they have an excellent chance to be efficient here. The Detroit defensive injury should also help Atlanta sustain drives. Meanwhile, Detroit's likely shift to a quicker tempo and more passing provides a possible spark to this game environment. If Atlanta can get ahead, that would serve to further push Detroit into open-it-up-and-throw-it mode, and in that scenario, we know that Atlanta's running game is likely having success and potentially having explosive plays. Sometimes, we give a bad rap to teams who run the ball often, but this Falcons combination of run blocking and playmakers gives it a little more juice than your run-of-the-mill old-school offense. If Detroit builds a lead, we would have a chance to see Atlanta come out of their shell more than they have in the first two games. In any regard, this game comes filled with intrigue and potential in a litany of ways. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Saints at Packers. Kickoff Sunday, September 24th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 42 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. Jamal Williams is likely out, and Alvin Kamara has one final game remaining on his suspension. New Orleans is likely to get rookie Kendra Miller back from injury, as he practiced in full on Wednesday. The Saints' backfield is expected to be some combination of Tony Jones Jr. and Miller, with the potential for increased involvement from Taysom Hill on the ground. Aaron Jones was a DNP in practice Wednesday, while Christian Watson got in a limited session. How New Orleans will try to win. The Saints have actually been playing with pace to start the season, coming in at a solid 7th ranked 26.7 seconds per play. Their pass rate over expectation value has routinely been around the middle of the league under the current regime, and this season is no different. New Orleans has struggled to find the end zone to begin the season, averaging only 18 points scored per game with quarterback Derek Carr tossing just one touchdown pass through two games. Even so, New Orleans currently finds itself at 2-0 atop the haphazard NFC South having given up just one touchdown combined to the Panthers, who scored it with 116 remaining in the fourth quarter of Week 2, and the Titans, along with five field goals. Carr currently leads the league in average intended air yards at a robust 10.4 value, primarily through downfield looks to Chris Olave and Rashid Shahid, meaning eventually the bulk plays are likely to come for this offense. The standard Joe Barry off-coverage defensive scheme for the Packers has allowed the Bears and Falcons to average 378.5 yards of offense per game which ranks 27th in the league through two weeks. As mentioned above, the ground game should be a mix of Tony Jones Jr., who is currently the only back on the roster with NFL experience, Miller, who was the expected primary change of pace back entering the season, and the potential for perennial troll Taysom Hill to see increased utilization on the ground. Hill has primarily been used at the quarterback position on design draws to this point in the season, but we've seen the Saints dial up some interesting looks for their mega utility player when given the time to prepare. This game could very much be an instance where they utilize Hill's multifaceted skill set heavier on the ground, particularly considering a matchup with a Packers team that has largely had no answer for mobile quarterbacks under Barry. The Packers' defensive coordinator loves him some athletic linebackers, which is typically a plus against mobile quarterbacks, but his high zone rate and prevent-style defensive scheme typically keeps safeties deep and out of the box, and linebackers both rushing and dropping in coverage. This has led to the propensity to get absolutely burned by mobile quarterbacks in the past, 
particularly if the opposing offense is capable of scheming up designed runs to the side of the incoming pressure, something I expect Pete Carmichael to do in this spot. The Saints have utilized an interesting spread of offensive personnel alignments through two weeks, which is another nod to Carmichael and his ability to game plan to simultaneously maximize the talent he has at his disposal and take advantage of the shortcomings of the opposing defense. In week one, that meant an offense primarily built around 11 personnel against the Titans. In week two, however, that meant extreme 12 personnel rates against the Panthers. As in, the team was in 12 personnel at a 41% clip even before you factor in Hill's 40% snap rate, which we know comes from all over the formation, but he's listed at tight end. In this spot, against the previously examined Packers defense, I would expect another game of elevated 12 personnel alignments and increased reliance on Taysom. And the funniest part about that is Barry is the type of coach to not adjust his defensive scheme a lick during the game, typically heavily reliant on whatever game plan he comes up with before first kick. As such, Carmichael is likely to continue writing what works early, and I have a sneaking suspicion it will involve increased involvement for Hill. Keith Kirkwood has annoyingly taken a piece of the offensive pie from Shahid this season, which has kept the latter around a 50% snap rate in consecutive weeks. One final note here is the presence of tight end Foster Moreau on the injury report Wednesday when he missed practice with an ankle injury. How Green Bay will try to win. The Packers carry a slow-paced, grinded-out offense, 23rd-ranked seconds per play value and 18th-ranked PROE, into a Week 3 meeting with a Saints team that ranks 4th in the league in total offense allowed during the first two weeks of the season at 262 yards per game. Packers quarterback Jordan Love is tied with Kirk Cousins for the league lead with six passing touchdowns through two weeks, but a lot of that could be a mirage. Love currently sports the league's second-worst completion versus expected completion rate at negative 10.8%, a smidge above Justin Fields. He has mostly made up for it thus far through an aggression factor that is off the charts. His 25% aggressive throw rate ranks first in the league by a massive margin, and his 9.3 average intended air yards ranks fifth in the league, meaning Love is straight slinging. On the other hand, we keep waiting for Packers quarterbacks, and the offense as a whole, to regress in efficiency, something that largely hasn't happened over the previous decade of play. In all honesty, I have no idea what to make of that discussion. Even as a Packers fan, the offense and quarterback position just continue to outperform underlying metrics, and I don't have a solid explanation for why or how that is the case. Jones missed practice Wednesday as he continues to recover from a strained hamstring suffered in the team's opening game. Considering his age and the injury at hand, I expect him to miss one or two more games. That left a solid 68% snap share to A.J. Dillon in Week 2, with Patrick Taylor a game-day elevation and Emmanuel Wilson used sparingly behind him. Green Bay has averaged a laughably low 52.5 offensive plays run from scrimmage per game, keeping the entire offense in the realm of efficiency and touchdowns or bust. The Packers continue to boast a top-three offensive line and performed at a high level even in the absence of their best lineman, David Bakhtiari, in Week 2. If there's one area of defense the Saints have struggled in to start the season, it's against the run. New Orleans has seeded a robust 5.0 yards per carry to opposing backfields through two games. Yes, one of those backfields was that of the Titans, but Tennessee's offensive line is dust compared to what it used to be. The final thought here is that Dylan just isn't that good. He currently holds the third lowest rush yards over expectation value in the league, just ticks ahead of Rashad White and Cam Akers. And that isn't anything new. He ranked ninth lowest in 2022 as well. The team could be getting electric downfield threat Christian Watson back from injury after the second-year wide receiver missed each of the team's first two games. 
Watson returned to a limited session on Wednesday, but has been fighting through a nagging hamstring injury throughout the year of the hamstring 2023. The Green Bay snap rates amongst pass catchers have been all over the map to start the year, with some dude named Dontavian Wicks seeing meaningful snaps through two weeks. From a macro perspective, no pass catcher has seen more than 89 offensive snaps this season, and that player is rookie tight end Luke Musgrave, 75% and 88% snap rates over the first two weeks. All of Romeo Dobbs, Wicks, Jaden Reed, Samori Toure, and Malik Heath have seen between 67 and 39 offensive snaps total this season, 60.9% down to 35.5%. Again, this team will continue to provide those random two-touchdown days to pass catchers, but we've seen a ridiculously unconcentrated offense to begin the season. Whether or not that corrects as we move forward remains to be seen, but this team's clear top aerial weapons are Watson, Dobbs, Reed, and Musgrave, in some order. The Saints rank near the middle of the league in defensive A dot allowed and pressure rate to begin the season, but they have really clamped down in the red zone, second rank 16.67%, red zone touchdown rate allowed. Likeliest Game Flow I see this game as likeliest to play to a ground-based battle between two rather sticky defensive coordinators. Each team is likely to take their downfield looks, but each defense is largely of the bend-don't-break variety and has elite talents on the back end. Touchdowns are likely to be at a premium here, and the Saints have been stout defensively to begin the season when in the red zone. Considering these two teams have combined for 60.3 offensive plays per game through two weeks, we also are likely to see fewer than average total offensive plays run from scrimmage here, with offenses designed to march the field while taking aggressive downfield looks. Along the same line of thinking, and although there are players present in this spot that carry individual per-play upside, we're threading a mighty fine needle trying to project where the production is likeliest to come, in addition to the reduced chances for this game environment to erupt. Texans at Jaguars. Kickoff Sunday, September 24th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 44. Game Overview by Hilo. The Texans have averaged 45.5 pass attempts per game over the first two weeks of the season. Both teams rank in the top 12 in seconds per play. Houston is 5th at 25.5 while Jacksonville is 12th at 27.9. Nico Collins and Tank Dell both rank in the top 10 in average separation at target amongst qualified pass catchers. Zay Jones missed practice Wednesday with a knee injury suffered against the Chiefs. Both offensive lines are legitimate issues for these two teams. How Houston will try to win. First off, I don't think we necessarily have been shown how the Texans want to try and win games this season just yet. While the team is averaging 45.5 pass attempts per game over the first two weeks of the season, their pass rate over expectation values have ranked in the bottom half of the league in both weeks. On the other hand, their 25.5 seconds per play ranks as the fifth fastest pace of play thus far. We all thought coming into this season that new head coach D'Amico Ryans would adapt a more conservative game management approach built around the talent on the defense, but we've seen a team not afraid to air it out when the opportunity presents itself. Offensive coordinator Bobby Slowick is cut from the Kyle Shanahan and Gary Kubiak coaching tree, and we've seen some of their robust layering present in the route trees of his primary pass catchers already this season. The biggest problem in instilling a zone-gap run-blocking scheme has been the health up front, as Houston played the first two weeks of the season, missing three starters along their offensive line, and are now set to start week three with four starters missing. For all the struggles of this offensive line in the run game, they still rank ninth in the league in percentage of dropbacks without yielding a pressure. That will likely be put to the test against a Jacksonville defense averaging the sixth highest pressure rate through two weeks, 29.3%. 
that pressure rate has translated to a low defensive ADOT against, which ranks 7th at 6.3. Week 2 marked the second consecutive week where leadback Damian Pierce played just 45% of the team's offensive snaps. Even with Mike Boone out of the lineup in Week 2, Daria Gumbawale stepped in to 16 offensive snaps, and Devin Singletary saw his role grow into 36% of the offensive snaps. Until this team can get healthy up front, I don't see a scenario where the ground game is able to get going. The Texans are averaging just 24.5 rush attempts per game through two weeks, and that's with a combined, and absurd, 160 total offensive plays run from scrimmage, 76 in Week 1 and 84 in Week 2. The NFL average is just over 65 per game. It also doesn't help that the Jaguars have allowed only 11 explosive plays through two games against the Colts and Chiefs. We should have very little interest in this run game until the offensive line returns to health and we start to see some of the zone gap run blocking principles we were promised. As was mentioned earlier, Houston's offensive line has largely held up well in protection thus far, but now faces perhaps their toughest test against the athletic pass rushers of the Jaguars. C.J. Stroud's time to throw ranks 10th slowest of qualified passers through two weeks, but his intended air yards per pass attempt resides at a healthy 8.0, 13th deepest in the league. Slowick has also been able to design an offense with layered route concepts, leading to two pass catchers ranked in the top 10 in the league in average separation at target through two weeks, Nico Collins and Tank Dell. Sorry, Robert Woods. Sad face emoji. Another aspect of the offense that could help rationalize the plus pass protection but horrendous run blocking metrics of this offensive line is the hefty 35% 12 personnel utilization through two weeks. 30% in week one and 39% in week two. Nico Collins has been in a route only 81.8% of Houston's pass plays on just a 66.3% snap rate, but his 30.6% targets per route run rate ranks 16th in the league through two weeks. Through 160 offensive plays, the top three wide receivers of Collins, Dell, and Robert Woods have combined for only 25 slot snaps, further highlighting an emphasis on two wide alignments and the presence of tight end Dalton Schultz out of the slot, fourth highest slot snap rate amongst tight ends this season. That said, Schultz currently has an ADOT of 1.5. Lol. How Jacksonville will try to win. Like the Texans, I don't think we have seen the full picture regarding how Jacksonville would like to try and win games this season. Also like the Texans, I attribute a lot of that to an offensive line that has vastly underperformed their expectations coming into the season, currently ranking as the league's 29th ranked unit. Rookie right tackle Anton Harrison ranks 70th of 76 qualified tackles in pass protection this season. Under consistent pressure this season, quarterback Trevor Lawrence holds a modest 7.3 average intended air yards per pass attempt and the 8th worst completion percentage above expectation. Furthermore, and in stark contrast to the Texans, Doug Peterson's offense has lacked creativity and been more one-dimensional than I can remember seeing from any season as a head coach or offensive coordinator. Lead back Travis Etienne ranks 4th in snap rate, 79.4%, 3rd in weighted opportunities per game, 18.7, 4th in routes run, 26th, and 3rd in route participation, 81.3% amongst qualified running backs. The Tank Bigsby late offseason surge was proved to be highly overblown as ETN has garnered one of the highest team opportunity shares in the league to begin the season. That said, he has not been immune to the inefficiencies up front, putting forth a modest 4.0 yards per carry and 3.22 yards per touch. The opportunity is there, but the efficiency has been largely lacking. Consider the matchup a weakness-on-weakness matchup against the Houston defense that once again ranks worst in the league with six rushing scores allowed through two weeks. 
Even with a general inability to stop opposing backs from entering the end zone, the 4.3 yards per carry seeded by the Texans to begin the year ranks near the middle of the pack. A year after finishing the season ranked 12th in pass rate over expectation, the Jaguars rank 14th through two weeks of the 2023 season. Also like the Texans, the Jaguars have tried to compensate for poor pass blocking by running elevated rates of 12 personnel, 59% in Week 1 and 28% in Week 2. The decrease in 12 personnel in Week 2 allowed slot-wide receiver Christian Kirk to go from a 60% snap rate in Week 1 to 81% in Week 2, giving him the opportunity to exploit the generally poor slot coverage from the Chiefs. His 14 targets in Week 2 led the team after a quiet opener. The Texans' defense has performed better than their top-level metrics would indicate, generating pressure at a solid 25.8% rate on the backs of a 28.8% blitz rate. Similar to the Jaguars' defense, Houston has allowed just 12 explosive plays against this season, almost entirely due to 20 missed tackles. That tells me that the defense is schematically coherent, and when they cut down on mental lapses and poor tackling techniques, they could surge in defensive efficiency metrics. Based on the combination of these two profiles, I loosely expect another boost to 12 personnel rates from the Jaguars, which would theoretically boost Evan Ingram and decrease the expectations of Kirk. Finally, Zay Jones departed the team's Week 2 contest against the Chiefs in the first half. He would return to the game, but he did not participate in practice Wednesday. Likeliest Game Flow I entered this write-up thinking I would emerge with a far different stance than I actually did. As in, the underlying metrics from each team points to a higher likelihood of a muted game environment, whereas I thought, via top-level metrics, that this was shaping up as a game to go out of our way to target this week. Both offensive lines are legitimate issues for these teams, and both defenses are well-coached and well-run from a schematic standpoint. Furthermore, the Jaguars are legitimately the fastest defense in the league from top to bottom. I see that as influencing the offensive personnel utilizations from both offenses here as the likeliest scenario, which reduces the expected snap rates of the three primary Houston wide receivers, since tight end Dalton Schultz has a stranglehold on slot snaps, and mutes the expected snap rate of Christian Kirk in Jacksonville, pending the health of Zay Jones. That said, this game environment definitely has paths to eruption, but the fact of the matter is that both of these defenses rank in the top half of the league in explosive play rate against thus far. Broncos at Dolphins. Kickoff Sunday, September 24th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 48. Game Overview by Hilo. Jalen Waddell suffered a concussion in Week 2 and has yet to practice this week as of Thursday. Salvin Ahmed has yet to practice with a groin injury as of Thursday. The Broncos have largely struggled to get their offense going through multiple key injuries. Jerry Judy ran 66% of his snaps from the slot in his first game action of the 2023 season, which is more in line with his career rates and much higher than his slot snap rate in 2022 of just over 37%. Raheem Mostert's 73% snap rate and the success of McDaniel's outside zone run scheme come together to provide an excellent range of outcome profiles. How Denver will try to win. The Broncos have averaged 65 offensive plays per game behind modest pace of play, 20th ranked 29.2 seconds per play, and the 6th highest pass rate over expectation values. As in, it appears as if this offense is still trying to find their way in certain aspects, which makes sense considering the massive changes the team undertook this offseason. One of the strengths of this team is its offensive line, which has underperformed in pass blocking metrics but overperformed in run blocking metrics through two games. Right tackle Mike McGlinchey, who came over from the 49ers during the offseason, has allowed 13 pressures through two games after allowing just 30 during the entirety of the 2022 season. Left tackle Garrett Bowles has allowed just two sacks since week 7 of last year. 
Right guard Quinn Menares has dominated inside, locking to a massive 82.9 run blocking grade from PFF over the first two weeks of the season. Left guard Ben Powers is a plus run blocker, but suspect in the passing game. Finally, center Lloyd Cushenberry has proven to be a well-rounded interior offensive lineman this season after struggling with run blocking a season ago. The backfield has been a veritable disaster when compared to historical usage and production trends under Sean Payton. Javante Williams has been utilized as the primary early down back, while Samaje Pirine has played as the change of pace and long down and distance back, as we thought, coming into the season, but the efficiency and utilization have been far below expectations. The Broncos are currently tied with Kansas City and Chicago with only 22.5 rush attempts per game through two weeks, and the backfield tandem has accounted for just 25.5 running back opportunities per game. Considering a snap split almost down the middle, 45% snap rate apiece in Week 1, and a 50-45% snap rate split in Week 2, that doesn't leave a ton of opportunities for either back. That said, Vic Fangio's nickel-heavy, too-high defensive scheme would seem to give opposing coaches the ability to attack more relentlessly on the ground, something we could see transpire here, assuming the game script doesn't get out of hand. Circling back to the uncertainty regarding how we expect the Broncos' offense to operate, we haven't had a game where all their pieces have been healthy yet. Jerry Judy missed Week 1 and returned to 68% of the offensive snaps in Week 2. Tight end Greg Dulcich was placed on injured reserve following Week 1 with another hamstring injury. Lil Jordan Humphrey and Brandon Johnson, two practice squad-wide receivers, have played around 50% of the offensive snaps through two games. And rookie-wide receiver and field stretcher Marvin Mims has played 17 and 16 offensive snaps during the first two weeks of the season. Coming into the season, I expected Mims to be an integral piece in the offense, capable of exploiting a defense deep and manipulating safeties. That hasn't come to fruition just yet. Peyton might be wanting more from what he has seen of him to this point. Once at peak health and effectiveness, I would expect Mims to operate in the Z role, with Sutton playing his standard X and Judy allowed to return to a heavier slot role. Judy's low snap rate in Week 2 means less when you consider he was in a route on every designed pass play and played 30 of his 45 snaps from the slot, which is right in line with his 2021 slot snap rate when he was more of a full-time slot receiver. Tight end Adam Troutman should continue to serve as the primary every-down tight end in the absence of Dulcich, but brings limited upside with a more catch-and-fall athletic profile. How Miami will try to win. The Dolphins run an up-tempo, 9th-ranked 27.4 seconds per play, highly concentrated offense that flows primarily through Tyree Kill, Jalen Waddell, and the backfield. The 2023 version of the Mike McDaniel offense has included extreme utilization of 21 personnel, through the inclusion of Alec Ingold in a robust role. The increased usage of 21 personnel has meant no skill position player outside of the previously mentioned three, plus tight end Durham Smythe, is playing meaningful offensive snaps, with Braxton Berrios, River Craycraft, and Eric Izukanme all rotating through that third wide receiver spot. More on this below, but for now, we'll leave it at this offense is extremely concentrated up top. The outside zone run scheme of the Dolphins has largely been too much to handle for the league throughout just over a season. McDaniel has altered his approach slightly this season, hammering outside zone run concepts before mixing in inside zone rushes, which helped spring lead back Raheem Mostert on his 43-yard touchdown scamper against the Patriots in Week 2. Without Jeff Wilson around, Mostert has taken over the lion's share of the backfield opportunities for the Dolphins, playing 73% of the team's offensive snaps in consecutive weeks. His 31 running back opportunities through two weeks are highlighted by six red zone touches, 1.25 fantasy points per opportunity, sixth in the league, and a solid 42 total routes run, eighth in the league. 
We haven't gotten a full look at rookie running back Devon Achain yet after he missed week one and was eased into action in week two, but Salvin Ahmed has back-to-back DNPs to start the practice week. And while we shouldn't expect an insane workload behind Mostert, we could get our first real look at the elite speed from the rookie against the Broncos. Okay, now that we have the macro discussion of this offense under our belts, we'll now bring up the fact that Jalen Waddell has yet to practice, as of Thursday, with a concussion. The already concentrated nature of this offense would likely become that much more concentrated when we take into account McDaniel's previous coaching tendencies. Craycraft and Izu Kanme would be the likeliest players to see their roles grow on the perimeter in the absence of Waddle, but volume would be likeliest to be more concentrated amongst Hill, Smythe, and the backfield. Hill's modest 86.7% route participation rate is overshadowed by an absolutely absurd 36.9% targets per route run rate and the most air yards in the league through two weeks, at 354. His 30.3 expected fantasy points per game leads the league by a wide margin. If Waddle misses here, we're going to have a significant decision amongst the top tier of wide receivers with Justin Jefferson in a blow-up spot and Hill in a tough micro matchup with Pat Sertain, but carrying an elite per-route expectation. As for that micro matchup, Sertain is one of the best pure cover corners in the league, but Damari Mathis and Asang Bassi have been absolutely exposed this season. Knowing McDaniel, it is highly likely Hill would be schemed via motion and unique alignments to see a significant number of snaps away from Sertain's primary coverage. Likeliest Game Flow As has been an overarching theme of this game, the Broncos still appear to be working through how they want their team to operate in the long run. Sean Payton has been one of the most consistent offensive minds in the game over the previous decade, but a change of scenery, new personnel, and a new supporting cast is likely to take time to develop into its full potential. That leaves the likeliest outcome here fully in the hands of Miami to control, and it could be through an even more condensed offense than we are typically used to. Both defenses have struggled to contain opposing offenses in the red zone. Denver, 71.4% red zone touchdown rate allowed. Miami, 85.7% red zone touchdown rate allowed. Meaning this game has the makings to blow up in a flash. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Chargers at the Vikings kick off Sunday, September 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 54. Game Overview by Hilo. These two teams combine to run a play every 25.6 seconds, by far the fastest expected pace from a game this season. Austin Eckler did not practice Wednesday, and head coach Brandon Staley somewhat quietly told reporters during Monday Night Football that there is no timeline for his eventual return. If reading the tea leaves here, that tells me Eckler won't return until likely week four or five. Eric Kendricks, one of the top free agent additions to the LAC defense this offseason, remained a DNP on Wednesday with a hamstring injury. Keenan Allen and Mike Williams are quietly back-to-back in league-wide rankings of the percentage of the team's air yards this season. Keenan has seen 19 targets, and Williams has seen 18. How Los Angeles will try to win The Chargers have played with pace. 25.9 seconds per play ranks 6 in the league this year, but have been one of the most dynamic and fluid offenses in the league, hammering the run game against Vic Fangio's cover 3 defense in Week 1 
and shifting to an extremely pass-heavy offense against the stout run defense of the Titans in Week 2. But this was always theorized to be the case after the team ditched former offensive coordinator Joe Lombardi and replaced him with Kellen Moore this offseason. We've talked about what that shift in philosophy was likely to mean for this offense, dating all the way back to our exploration in the team breakdowns for the best ball plus product back in April. In this spot, against a Vikings defense that ranks near the bottom of the league in rush EPA allowed, I expect we see a more run-balanced offense through Joshua Kelly, assuming Eckler is out, which appears likely at this time. Even in a run-balanced approach in Week 1 against the Dolphins, quarterback Justin Herbert attempted a healthy yet unspectacular 33 passes, with 19 of those targets flowing through Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, and Eckler. Kelly was on the field for a borderline elite 79% of the offensive snaps in Week 2 without Eckler, which should give us a solid idea of what his usage will look like against an opponent they should be able to attack on the ground. Back in Week 1 in a similar spot, Eckler and Kelly combined for 32 attempts for 208 yards and two touchdowns on the ground, and 47 yards on six targets through the air. Kelly is unlikely to see 30-plus running back opportunities here but 22-24 is well within his range of outcomes and comes in a good spot. Elijah Dotson appears to have passed Isaiah Spiller on the depth chart in the backfield, playing nine offensive snaps in Week 2 to just four for Spiller. From a macro perspective, the Chargers ran 81 offensive plays from scrimmage in a Week 1 shootout with the Dolphins and 68 in Week 2 against the pace-down Titans, meaning an expectation of 75-plus offensive plays considering the pace-up nature of each of these offenses is a valid conclusion. As discussed above, the bulk of the volume through the air in this offense flows through three spots, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, and the running backs. Kelly is not on the same level as a guy like Eckler when it comes to pass-catching abilities, meaning we could see another game where the bulk of the aerial work is fed through Allen and Williams. Allen currently sports a solid 27.1% team target market share, with a solid, for him, 11.7 ADOT, while Williams sports a 25.7% team target market share and modest, for him, 8.4 ADOT. Quinton Johnson seeded work to some dude named Darius Davis in Week 2, dropping from a 27% snap rate in Week 1 to 15% in Week 2. If you followed my work in best ball, this should not come as a surprise. The Chargers have continued to operate a tight end rotation primarily between Gerald Everett and Donald Parham Jr., with the former seeing the bulk of his work between the 20s and the latter being utilized at a heavier rate in the red zone. Neither provides a bankable profile on what amounts to an expectation of around 50% of the offensive snaps. The highly concentrated nature of this pass offense provides paths to upside even if the Chargers adopt a more run-balanced nature in this spot. How Minnesota will try to win The Vikings continue to push the pace and the passing, checking into Week 3 with the fourth fastest time between snaps, 25.4 seconds, and second highest pass rate over expectation. Although this team is 0-2, this isn't a case of them having played catch-up for the better part of both of those games either. They went into halftime tied 10-10 in Week 1 against the Buccaneers, and played a close game throughout. In Week 2, they were winning 7-3, with under 3 minutes remaining in the second quarter, and went into halftime down 13-7. A fumble and 3-and-out to start the second half against the Eagles allowed Philadelphia to score two quick touchdowns in the third frame. 
Basically, we can be confident that the Vikings are going to push game environments on their own for most of the season, making them a team to continue to include in our game environment bets throughout the year. The Vikings have also an extremely concentrated offense from a snap rate perspective, running an 11 personnel base with the inclusion of sporadic jumbo sets through 12 and 21 personnel. Fullback C.J. Ham and tight end Josh Oliver mix into jumbo sets. In the write-up of the Packers this week, I mentioned that A.J. Dillon has been one of the most inefficient backs in the league this season. The back that ranks just behind him in yards over expectation per rush is none other than Alexander Madison, something it appears the staff in Minnesota has noticed as well, considering they went out and traded for former Rams running back Cam Akers on Wednesday. We should not expect Akers to be overly involved here, but the main point is that Madison has not performed well with the opportunity to be lead back for the Vikings. You're going to see takes all over regarding how people in the industry expect this backfield to shake out moving forward. My take, this offense is going to remain extremely pass-heavy. Madison ranks 6th worst in the season in yards over expectation per rush at negative 1.16. Cam Akers ranks dead last in the league at negative 1.94. Compare that to Austin Eckler and Bijan Robinson, who lead the league with 3.42 and 2.63 respectively. Also, those are LOL-worthy per-touch efficiencies. The matchup on the ground is neutral to negative against a Chargers defense holding opponents to 3.9 yards per carry this season. Madison will likely have one or two more shots at primary duties, but he'll likely need multiple touchdowns and five to six receptions here to matter in GPPs. Possible, however, unlikely. We spoke to the concentrated nature of this offense above. Allow me to elaborate. Justin Jefferson has played all but one offensive snap this season and holds a 100% routes run rate. K.J. Osborne has played all but eight offensive snaps and has been in a route 100% of the time as well. And then we have a wide receiver that I believe was the most pro-ready to come out of this year's class in Jordan Addison. What's interesting and funny to me is that player profile's comp for Osborne is Olabisi Johnson, who some might remember began Jefferson's rookie season playing over him in Minnesota. Addison has scored in each of his first two professional games and is one of the smartest and most instinctual route runners to come into the league since Deontay Johnson. Go watch his 62-yard touchdown grab from Week 2, where the play was designed for him to run an in-route and he broke contain and exploded up the field in one-on-one coverage. This kid is special. I say all that to get to a specific point. It is highly likely Osborne's days of playing over Addison in two wide sets are numbered, and the game that happens will likely come at lower than should be ownership in Addison at what is going to end up lower than should be salary. TJ Hawkinson has run the seventh most routes amongst tight ends this season, but continues to operate in an extremely low ADOT role for the Vikings, resulting in a laughably low 3.6 ADOT this season. There are going to be weeks where Hawkinson puts up two touchdowns and challenges for the top overall score at the tight end position this season, but that's basically what he's going to need at his salary, and that's not going to happen every week. Likeliest Game Flow Everything aligns, in all aspects of the setup of this game, to provide a game environment conducive to scoring and to fantasy production. Both offenses can put up points in a hurry. Both defenses have largely underperformed the talent they have on the roster due to schematic issues. And both offenses are extremely concentrated. 
While we can't say for certain that this game will ultimately play to the game of the week, we can say that this setup provides a greater chance of that transpiring here than in any other perceived game of the week spots this season. In other words, although this game total is just three points higher than the top spot over the first two weeks, this spot has a greater percentage chance of blowing the game total out of the water as compared to the first two games this season with a game total over 50 points. There are a lot of angles to dissect from this game environment, which we will do in the DFS Plus interpretations, the end around, and the Slate podcast later in the week. The Patriots at the Jets kick off Sunday, September 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 36.5. Game Overview by Pappy The best DFS plays from this game are the defenses. Zach Wilson kills the value of the Jets' skill players. Both Patriots' tight ends are in play for different reasons. Ramondre Stevenson has a path to 20 touches. How New England will try to win. Bill Belichick finds himself in a spot that he hasn't been in in the past 20 years. Remarkably, Bill hasn't started a season 0-2 since 2001. That is an insane run and highlights how great Tom Brady was for such a long time. Everyone has heard the stat that only a small percentage of teams that start 0-2 make the playoffs. The numbers since 1990 are 31 out of 270 teams, just over 11%, that have made the playoffs. That's scary statistical territory for the Patriots. That number drops all the way down to only six teams since the NFL merger, 1979, that have made the playoffs after starting 0-3. The players need to win this game to feel like this isn't already a wasted year. The Patriots' new offensive coordinator, Bill O'Brien, always felt like a familiar face, rather than an aggressive hire. The only NFL success on his resume came as Tom Brady's QB coach. That's like growing up in America, going to a foreign-speaking country, taking an English class, and getting an A. The Patriots' offense looks like it knows they're supposed to play fast but they don't know how to play fast. It's as if a toddler is being screamed at to run, but can only muster a few quick steps before falling to their knees. The Patriots lead the league in no-huddle rate and rank third in situation-neutral pass rate. Despite all the play volume, they've only scored 20 and 17 points. They played two close games against good teams, the Eagles and the Dolphins, but that's largely because Belichick can get the most out of his defense. As of now, it seems like the Patriots have changed offensive philosophies and are going to run an up-tempo, pass-leaning offense. However, they are 0-2, and this matchup favors trying to run, so it wouldn't be shocking to see them be the same old, adaptable Patriots and come out running. Expect a balanced attack that tries to establish the run more than the first two games, but also plays with more tempo than we've seen in previous years from the Patriots. How New York will try to win. The poor Jets. After loading up to make a Super Bowl run with what looks like a championship-level defense, Aaron Rodgers only lasted one series before turning the reins over to Zach, frightened child Wilson. Wilson cruelly teased New Yorkers coming off the bench and looking serviceable in his first appearance before quickly reminding everyone why he has been labeled a colossal draft bust. 
The Cowboys are a tough defense, and the Jets are still 1-1 one and, one and home favorites, so it's not as if they're ready to throw in the towel. But the sky-high expectations have certainly come down after such a large downgrade at the most important position in sports. The Jets know they need to hide Wilson, and did everything they could in Week 2 with a 1970s-style 30% situation-neutral pass rate. Good try, guys, but you can't hide that scared little man. He still managed to take three sacks and throw three picks on only 27 attempts. The Giants might be better off running the Wildcat and using one of Dalvin Cook or Brees Hall at QB. The Cowboys' defense is a tough test, but things don't get much easier against New England, who has been stiff against the pass, 3rd in DVOA, and the run, 10th in DVOA. Wilson is 0-4 versus Belichick, and the Jets will do everything they can to limit his opportunity to throw interceptions. Expect the Jets coaching staff to try and hide Wilson for as long as possible, while hoping for a low-scoring defensive struggle that they can win late in the game. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a puny total, 37, with the Jets as slight, negative 2.5, home favorites. Those numbers feel about right, with the tiny total maybe even being a touch high. The Patriots have been playing like the Chargers, but there is no guarantee that style lasts against a pass defense no one wants to test. The Jets' run defense has been above average as well, and the most likely outcome has the Patriots struggling on offense. Zach Wilson is not good at football, and the Jets desperately want to hide him long enough for their defense to keep them in the game. The combination of two elite defenses, one inept offense and one scared offense, is likely to create a game full of punts, with a feel of first to 20 wins. The Bills at the Commanders kick off Sunday, September 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 43. Game Overview by Hilo The tropical storm moving up the east coast over the weekend could affect this one. Current expectations are winds up to 20 to 25 miles an hour, but with little to no rain. These two teams combined to account for over 72 offensive plays run from scrimmage per team per game, well above the league average of just over 65. While both offenses can be considered top-half units, both defenses have largely suppressed scoring on a per-drive basis. Buffalo ranks 8th in red zone touchdown rate allowed, and Washington ranks 3rd. Dawson Knox missed practice Wednesday with a back injury. Logan Thomas missed practice Wednesday with a concussion. The Buffalo defense has faced the fewest plays through two weeks at just 92. How Buffalo will try to win. The Bills have continued their recent trend of an emphasis on the passing game, but have surprisingly played at a snail's pace to begin the season, carrying the league's third highest pass rate over expectation, but averaging 30.9 seconds per play, 29th through two weeks. Even with the modest pace, Buffalo has run 69 and 78 offensive plays in their first two games, well above the league-wide average of just over 65. The Bills have shifted to a more bend-don't-break defensive philosophy built around nickel alignments, which, if it continues forward, should allow opposing offenses to pile up the yards against them. That said, they have also allowed a touchdown on only 40% of opposing drives entering the red zone after finishing last season ranked second overall at 45.61%.
Teams that crack the defense in the red zone against Buffalo will have the chance to send games against them to the moon, but those should be considered largely few and far between. After the selection of tight end Dalton Kincaid in the first round of this year's draft, the Bills have played from 12 personnel at the highest rate in the league, 73% in Week 1 and 50% in Week 2. It appears as if they're still trying to figure out their offensive personnel groupings, but we should largely expect them to carry those tendencies forward for as long as Knox and Kincaid remain healthy. That bears weight this week because Knox missed Wednesday's practice with a back injury. James Cook is the lead back in this offense. That said, he has played exactly 59% of the team's offensive snaps in each of the first two games and has come off the field in the red zone at a troubling rate. Latavius Murray and Damian Harris have mixed in for the remainder of the backfield snaps. Both Murray and Harris have found the end zone, while Cook has not, highlighting the team's propensity to bring in one of their bigger backs in the red zone. The other side of that discussion is the continued usage of Cook in the passing game, who has seen 10 targets through two contests. The Commanders have allowed Arizona backs and Denver backs to rush for 4.5 yards per carry, ninth most in the league. The final piece to consider here is the relative strength-on-strength nature of the matchup behind a Bills offensive line that blocked 2.2 yards before contact in Week 2 against a Washington defense that boasts one of the most talented defensive lines in the league. From a baseline expectation, Stephon Diggs and Gabe Davis should be viewed as the only near-every-down pass catchers for the Bills moving forward. All of Trent Sherfield, Deontay Henry, Khalil Shakir, and Quentin Morris are likely to mix in sporadically, with both Knox and Kincaid the two that could see the most week-to-week variation in their playing time dependent upon the matchup and the game plan. We know this offense is built around Josh Allen and what he can do both on the ground and through the air. Although Diggs continues to carry a non-elite snap rate, 85.6%, he has been in a route on 100% of the team's pass plays. The bigger concern is a continued emphasis on intermediate, more possession-style areas of the route tree, as evidenced by his modest 8.5 ADOT. His yards per route run rests at a non-elite 2.05, 28th, which is markedly lower than the 11.2 ADOT and 2.87 YPRR values from the season ago. Davis's deep roll, 13.3 ADOT, and high route participation rate, also 100%, continues to provide tantalizing upside in the face of a low targets per route run rate, 13.8%, and target market share, 14.9%. How Washington will try to win. A quick shout-out to JM here following his late off-season observation from Washington surrounding head coach Ron Rivera and his hands-off approach with the offense. Basically, Big Ron made a statement that he would have played Sam Howell sooner last season if he knew how good he was. However LOL-worthy that statement is, it highlights the approach from this team through competing philosophies. Rivera is a let-the-game-come-to-him-and-try-not-to-lose-it-early type of coach, while offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy is a cutthroat offensive mind who looks to maximize every offensive possession. That introduced some level of uncertainty regarding how this team would operate. Now, circle back to JM's observation of that off-season quote from Rivera, and it makes sense that Rivera has been more or less hands-off with the off-season in 2023, and simply let Bienemy do his thing. What that has translated to on paper is a moderate pace, 29.8 seconds per play, 24th in the league, 
and solid pass rate over expectation value, ninth in the league, ahead of the Dolphins, Chargers, and Rams. As we explored in this offseason, the Commanders carry one of the most talented top-to-bottom rosters amongst primary skill position players. We went through a roller coaster of potential shakeouts regarding the backfield split between second-year running back Brian Robinson and veteran Antonio Gibson this offseason. First, it appeared as if Gibson would enter the J.D. McKissick Plus role for the Commanders, with Robinson the primary early down grinder. Then, based on preseason usage, it looked as if these two backs would be rotated through, each playing early downs and staying on the field in obvious passing situations. Then, Gibson lost a fumble early in the team's Week 1 win over the Cardinals. Since that fumble, Gibson has received just 6 touches compared to 35 for Robinson. And that's with Washington having gone down 21-3 to the Broncos at one point in Week 2. That said, the snap rate split between the two in Week 2 was 52-48, to so it's not like Gibson has been phased out of the offense entirely. But Robinson has taken the lion's share of running back opportunities since Gibson's fumble, where Gibson has seen a lot of empty snaps. Considering the previous discussion around Biennemi's command of this offense, it begins to make sense why that could be the case. If we remember from this offseason, players on the Commanders literally went to Dad, Rivera, to tell on Mom, Biennemi, for being too intense. The matchup is not as probative on the ground as years past. The Bills have allowed a robust 5.3 yards per carry, but have yet to allow a rushing score this season, deflating their points allowed to opposing backfields in the process. While the overall composition of this offense carries elite upside, the individual pieces have seen sporadic usage through two weeks. One thing has remained rather consistent, however, and that's the utilization of three tight ends in a rotation. All of Logan Thomas, John Bates, and preseason darling Cole Turner are playing meaningful snaps for the Commanders through two weeks. Washington has played all of two offensive snaps from 21 personnel through two games, with a primary emphasis on 11 personnel with about league average rates of 12 personnel. Terry McLaurin and Jahan Dodson are tick below every down wide receivers. Curtis Samuel plays a standard for slot man at 60 to 65% rate. And Diami Brown and Byron Pringle have mixed in on the perimeter to varying degrees. The matchup through the air is non-prohibitive, but the overall composition of the Bills' defense should tilt opponents toward a run-balanced approach, considering their scheme and alignment tendencies shown thus far. Those tendencies include extreme rates of nickel and cover three principles, which means five defensive backs on the field for the majority of their defensive snaps. Likeliest Game Flow The ultimate outcome from this game likely comes down to each team's ability to score touchdowns once in the red zone. Both defenses currently rank in the top eight in red zone touchdown rate allowed. Both defenses also rank in the top eight in the percentage of opposing drives, resulting in a turnover. Washington at 8 and Buffalo at 5. Bring all that together and we're likely to see yardage totals pile up, but the overall game environment could go a number of ways considering who these defenses are. Said another way, we should expect a moderate overall pace, an above average number of offensive plays run from scrimmage due to chunk plays and disrupted drives, and we should expect both defenses to crack down in the red zone. Should the offenses find outlier production in getting into the end zone, this game environment could really take off, but it is not the likeliest scenario. 
As such, this could become a sneaky game to attack if it appears to be coming in at low ownership. If we start seeing ownership pile up here, it could be a fun one to largely avoid. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Panthers at the Seahawks. Kick off Sunday, September 24th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 42. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Bryce Young's status is in doubt due to an ankle injury that he is nursing on a short week after playing on Monday. Andy Dalton will start if Young is unable to play. Seattle's defense has not performed well through the first two weeks of the season, but they salvaged a win in Week 2. Stoppable force against movable object is the best way to describe the matchup between Carolina's offense and Seattle's defense. Seattle's offense has struggled to get their ground game going and may be better served using their passing game weapons aggressively early. How Carolina will try to win Carolina has passed the ball on 63% of their offensive plays so far this season but that rate is actually 6.9% lower than expected based on their game scripts. In Week 1, they lost an ugly, low-scoring game against the Falcons, and then did the same thing at home against the Saints in Week 2 on Monday night. Carolina is averaging 13.5 points through two games and has just over 500 combined yards in those outings. It has been a rough start to the Frank Wright-Bryce Young era in Carolina as the offense has appeared anything but explosive or efficient. Young is dead last in the NFL in yards per pass attempt at 42, meaning that not only is Carolina reluctant to throw the ball, but when they do so, they are not doing it well. Those decisions are likely correlated, but still, it makes it difficult to threaten defenses when you are so inept in that area. This week, Carolina travels to Seattle for a matchup with a defense that has given up 30-plus points in each of their first two games. Seattle's defense is designed in a way that theoretically protects against big plays, but also opens them up to intermediate-level chunk plays. It will be interesting to see if Carolina can break out of their funk a bit this week after the Rams and Lions had their way with the Seahawks. Carolina's offense currently ranks 31st in the league in yards per play, which is generally regarded as one of the more predictive stats for future performance. Meanwhile, Seattle's defense ranks 30th in the league in yards per play allowed. This dichotomy leaves a scenario where something has to break. The likeliest outcome is somewhere in the middle. Carolina's offense will improve from what we have seen, and Seattle's defense will not be shredded to the extent of the first two weeks. Rookie quarterback Bryce Young is unlikely to play in this game, leaving veteran QB Andy Dalton to take the reins. Dalton's presence may result in a slightly more aggressive downfield attack, although Seattle's conservative defense and deep-covered shells should keep the focus in the short-to-intermediate areas of the field. DJ Shark made his debut in Week 2, and his presence often opens things up for teams he's played on, but this matchup does not lend itself to a high degree of downfield passing. Carolina will likely once again lean on the run to a greater degree than expected while using Adam Thielen, Hayden Hurst, and Jonathan Mingo as zone beaters as extensions of the running game and on intermediate routes. How Seattle Will Try to Win 
Seattle opened their game against the Lions by running the ball 13 times, only to then have 15 pass attempts prior to the two-minute warning in the first half. They managed seven points in that half. During their opening drive in overtime, the Seahawks threw the ball seven times to only two rush attempts as they marched 75 yards for a game-winning touchdown. Seattle features Kenneth Walker as their lead back, and Walker's weakness is his propensity to try and bounce runs outside for big gains rather than taking what is there and then some. This leads to a lot of stuffed runs that end within a yard or two of the line of scrimmage and leaves the offense in tougher down and distance situations. This tendency to try and bounce runs is exaggerated right now, running behind an offensive line that is battling injuries. Considering an incompletion is objectively about the same outcome, and Geno Smith is averaging over 9 yards per completion this year, Seattle's best approach would likely be to open things up and throw often early in the game. They have a terrific receiving core of DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, and Jackson Smith and Jigba, along with a couple tight ends and a scheme that is able to attack multiple areas of the field. Throwing on early downs and aggressively chasing points early in games seems like the ideal philosophy for Seattle going forward. They could then turn to their running game once they have a lead, and use the defense's focus on the run to expose them via play-action passing. That approach seems far more optimal than slamming into a brick wall for the sake of establishing it, and then hoping the passing game can bail you out in a tough down-and-distance situation. Carolina's defense has some injuries in their secondary and has not faced an opponent with Seattle's passing game weapons yet, making this a prime spot for Seattle to change course and get on track after an ugly opener and a Week 2 game that they stole in Detroit. It's just a matter of whether or not Seattle's decision-makers can see the light. Likeliest Game Flow Week 3 is where we start to get some matchups that can tell us what is real and what was a mirage from the first couple of weeks. This matchup is one such situation where we are likely to find out if the Panthers' offense is the issue or if they've just had a couple of tough divisional games to start out. Likewise, is the Seattle defense going to get gashed all season, or did they just struggle schematically against two very good offensive coaches from the Rams and Lions? Seattle's approach and mindset are generally not to be overly aggressive and instigate high-scoring affairs. Rather, they have historically been pulled into those situations by their opponents, especially when playing at home. Carolina's current offensive situation is not one that we should expect to put the foot on the gas and pull Seattle out of its shell. Even if Carolina manages more offensive success than they had in the first couple of weeks, the Panthers have lacked explosive plays and Seattle's defensive scheme will likely require them to execute long, sustained drives that will eat up the clock and shorten the game. While Seattle is the team most likely to win this game and be in control on the scoreboard, the Panthers are the team whose performance is most closely tied to the expected game flow. With that in mind, and traveling cross-country to play on a short week, a relatively conservative and low-scoring affair seems like the highest probability outcome here. This very much has the feel of a first-team-to-20-wins situation. The Cowboys at the Cardinals kick off Sunday, September 24th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 43. Game Overview by Mike Johnson the Cowboys have steamrolled two overmatched opponents so far and now face another lower-tier team. 
Arizona has played a couple of solid and entertaining games, while maintaining their organization's apparent focus on building for 2024 with good draft position. Dallas has potentially the best defense in the league and is terrorizing opposing offensive lines and quarterbacks. Tony Pollard has become the bell cow that we have always wanted him to be, while C.D. Lamb has morphed into a true alpha. How Dallas will try to win. Dominant. That's about the only word you need to describe the Cowboys' season so far. Through two weeks, they have outscored their opponents 70-10, to and seven of the ten points they have given up came on a busted coverage missed tackle in the second quarter against the Jets. Outside of that one big play, the Cowboys' defense has been downright dominant. Their offense has been fine, but not great, but it really hasn't had to be. The defense has been so good that the offense has spent a lot of time playing conservatively and attacking short fields, which likely has a lot to do with their ranking of 24th in the NFL in yards per play. This week, Dallas gets another stop on its tour of matchups with overmatched opponents. They head to the desert against an 0-2, but surprisingly competitive, Cardinals team. It is hard to get a full grasp on how this Cowboys team wants to play this season. They have been an elite offense that plays aggressively when Dak Prescott is on the field in recent years. But Mike McCarthy was adamant this offseason about wanting his team to be built around its defense and running game. Through two games, they really haven't been pushed at all and have ended up in about the most positive game scripts you can write up against offenses that pose no threat. This week, against an Arizona team that many left for dead before the year, we may get the truest version of the Cowboys' offense we've seen to date. The reason for this is the Cardinals' philosophy and game plan is conservative on both sides of the ball. Through two games, Arizona has not committed a first-half turnover, and its defensive philosophy is conservative and focused on avoiding big plays from their opponents. This worked for the first three halves of the Cardinals' season against the Commanders, in Eric Bieniemy's debut as Washington's offensive coordinator, and the Giants, before Brian DeBall had his Becky the Icebox O'Shea shows up at halftime moment that turned the Giants' offense loose. The Cardinals' approach is relevant to Dallas because their likelihood of avoiding turnovers and moving the ball methodically and conservatively should keep them in it and avoid the Cowboys being gifted short fields that keep their offense from being forced to spread its wings. The Cowboys threw the ball 26 times in the first half against the Jets, compared to only 18 rush attempts, three of which were by Prescott. This means that the Cowboys were not handing the ball off on 66% of their offensive plays during that time a pretty aggressive number for a team whose coach self-proclaimed to be built on the running game. We should expect a similar approach from the Cowboys' offense in this game to what we saw in the first half of the Jets' game, and given the personnel strengths of the respective opponents, we could see a very productive first half from Dallas. Pollard and Lamb have established themselves as the clear engines of this offense and will be heavily involved in a variety of ways, with the rest of the team fighting for scraps. How Arizona Will Try to Win Props to the Cardinals coaches and players for being significantly more competitive in the first two weeks than pretty much anyone anticipated. The overwhelming sentiment surrounding the team entering this year was that they were selling off their talented veterans and positioning themselves for 2024. They are currently 0-2, but have led for the majority of their two games and probably should be 2-0. 
This is just a reminder for all of us in the virtual world evaluating things that the game is played on the field by professional athletes, and no matter how they project, each game is going to come down to the humans on the field battling it out every snap. To that end, Arizona's offensive execution and ball security has been very good, and its defense has performed extremely well for three of the four halves it's played so far. Arizona's game plan on a weekly basis is going to be very clear for the foreseeable future. Try to take care of the ball and have a balanced attack that avoids negative situations and limits the likelihood of disaster. Josh Dobbs has been great through two weeks and is surprisingly ranked 10th in the NFL in average intended air yards. I would expect that number to come down early in this game, given the strength of the Dallas pass rush and the conservative, protect-the-ball nature of the Arizona offense. James Conner should be busy, and Arizona will likely look to get the ball out of Dobbs' hands quickly and use his rushing ability to challenge the Dallas defense in a variety of ways. The Dallas defense is talented and opportunistic, but the ball can be moved against it. The Jets managed 153 first-half yards with Zach Wilson manning the ship on a short week, so we have to believe Arizona can sustain drives to a respectable level for at least a portion of this game. Likeliest Game Flow The Cowboys' offense is likely to have success and be given their best opportunity of the year to stay aggressive deep into a game, as the Cardinals are somehow the best offensive threat Dallas has seen to date. Star cornerback Trayvon Diggs suffered a season-ending ACL tear in practice Thursday, which also serves to increase the likelihood of Arizona producing just enough offense to keep Dallas from getting comfortable. While both teams have somewhat conservative mindsets in general, this game has some elevated scoring potential based on the fact that, one, Dallas will be forced to take the offensive much more than they have been the first two weeks, and two, Arizona has to enter this game knowing it's going to need to score points to have a chance. Dallas isn't going to let the Cardinals win a game scoring less than 20 points. Arizona's bend-but-don't-break approach might be broken by a talented Cowboys offense, and the heralded Cowboys defense is susceptible to breakdowns when it isn't able to generate turnovers. At the end of the day, the Cowboys are likely to pull away for a comfortable victory, but this feisty Cardinals team has a better chance to keep things interesting into the second half than most people will assume. The Bears at the Chiefs Kickoff Sunday, September 24th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 48. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Chiefs narrowly escaped an 0-2 start by squeaking by the Jaguars in Week 1, and now look to get their offense back on track. The entire Bears organization is reeling right now, both on and off the field. The Bears have been using Justin Fields in suboptimal ways through two weeks, and given the putrid results, we should expect some adjustments in week three. Kansas City likely needs to run the ball more often to increase the efficiency of their offense due to their lack of matchup winners in their receiving core. This is likely to be the most lopsided outcome on this week's slate. How Chicago will try to win. Chaos. That's the best way to describe the current state of things in Chicago. The Bears entered the season with high hopes after winning the offseason with some free agent signings, all their cap space, and loading up on draft picks after trading the number one overall pick. A little over a week after the first regular season snap, however, things are beginning to unravel. 
The defense continues to be put on notice on a weekly basis while the offense has regressed. They have stopped using Justin Fields on designed runs, only two through two games, and there have been several plays where film study will show he has missed wide-open receivers on what should be elementary reads. The running game has also struggled, as the lack of designed runs for Fields is shrinking and the running lanes for running backs and the offensive line is getting decimated with injuries that are making those running lanes few and far between. The end result of all of this is a passing game that strikes no fear in defenses and a running game that can't consistently gain positive yardage to create favorable down and distance situations. As we enter week three, the Bears are facing a litany of challenges. There are some things going on off the field that are concerning, but we won't get into that here. The biggest thing to consider is what their offensive approach will actually be. Considering how poorly this season has started for the offense, and the comments of Justin Fields to the media this week, Smart Money is on a change of approach that more closely resembles the late 2020 Bears offense that ran the ball with Fields and their backs, focused on easier reads, and let Fields play more sandlot ball by utilizing his athleticism to ad-lib. Chicago has to expect the Chiefs to score points here, which means they should enter with the mindset of maximizing points. However, they also have to be cognizant of being too aggressive and getting into a track meet. In an ideal world, they would eat up a lot of clock and shorten the game while minimizing turnovers. The reality is that they are likely going to struggle to stay on the field and sustain drives unless Fields is able to make enough off-script plays to keep them in the game. If they can get to halftime with both teams scoring under 14 points, they have a chance to muck it up in the third quarter and hope for some good bounces late. How Kansas City Will Try to Win The defending Super Bowl champions have had a rocky start to the 2023 season and enter Week 3 with a 1-1 record and averaging 18.5 points per game after leading the NFL in 2022 at 29.2 points per game. As a matter of fact, the Chiefs only scored 20 or fewer points on three occasions in 20 games last year, but have done exactly that in both of their 2023 appearances. This is a team that has high expectations and aspirations and has to be focused on getting things on the right track at this point. The good news is that this week presents a golden opportunity as their level of competition will take a significant step down after the two opening weeks where they face teams, Lions and Jaguars, who are widely expected to be contenders in their respected divisions and conferences. The Bears come to town this week and have lost 12 consecutive regular season games dating back to October of last season, failing to hold an opponent under 25 points during that stretch. Kansas City has an astounding 14.3% pass rate over expectation through two weeks as they lead the league in that category by a healthy margin. In Week 2, the Chiefs had only two rush attempts by their running backs in the first half of what was a tight, low-scoring game. Obviously, when you have Patrick Mahomes, you want to throw the ball a lot. However, there is a tipping point, especially against good opponents, where you can become too predictable. This is especially the case when your receivers are not necessarily the type to win on their routes consistently. Isaiah Pacheco had 11 rushes for 64 yards in the second half as the Chiefs took control, however, and perhaps that success will carry over into a more balanced approach in this game. 
The Bears' defense has struggled mightily through two weeks, and the Chiefs should enter this game with an aggressive mindset, as they can get right, build confidence, and have a lot of players get theirs in a matchup like this against a reeling opponent. Twelve players received a target from Patrick Mahomes last week, and the way they are rotating personnel throughout the game along with the expected game flow here makes it likely that they will have a broad distribution of targets yet again. Travis Kelsey will be the focal point and may get more downfield work in the seams. Kadarius Toney and Sky Moore will get some schemed looks. Justin Watson and Marquez Valdez-Scantling will get a handful of vertically oriented targets, and the rest will be broken up among the remaining backs tight ends, and rookie wide receiver Rushi Rice. I would expect the Chiefs to be more balanced in their play calling than they were early in the Jacksonville game last week, but to still throw at an above-expected rate and to do so in some aggressive ways down the field. I also expect that Kansas City will stay aggressive even as they build a league, and will likely have a chance to pile on the points here. There seem to be a couple of games like this each year where the Chiefs get an overmatched opponent in Arrowhead and use it to build momentum into their other games. Likeliest Game Flow This isn't a very complex situation to figure out. The Chiefs are going to be focused and motivated to get out of their offensive rut and are facing a reeling opponent. The way Chicago's defense gives up points leaves us with a high degree of certainty that the Chiefs will score 14-plus points in the first half. With that in mind, we can expect Chicago to be pulled into an aggressive mindset earlier in the game than they would like. Given the chaos around the organization, it feels like a long shot that playing out of their comfort zone will result in good outcomes. This makes the most likely scenario to be a Chiefs route where they are building a huge first half lead and able to coast the rest of the way. I have serious doubts about Chicago's ability to sustain drives, which means the Chiefs may get extra possessions. And the last thing any opponent wants to do against Patrick Mahomes is give him mulligans.